0: This is an RNZ podcast.
1: This is Media Watch. I'm Colin Peacock. Of all the bodies holding the media to account on behalf of us all these days, the Broadcasting Standards Authority is the most muscular, and now it's changing its focus to protecting New Zealanders from harm. But why and what does that mean? The BSA is also asking if broadcasting standards need to change after the Christchurch mosque attacks, and that could be controversial against the backdrop of increased angst about hate speech and freedom of speech. We talked to its current chair and CEO about that. Also, MediaWorks launched the Edge TV channel five years ago, promising radio with pictures on steroids. The Edge TV, June 27. Turn it on. But now they've turned it off, leaving New Zealand with no local music TV at all. But first, the Cricket World Cup made headlines here this week, and in football, the Women's World Cup in France made headlines all around the world. And this time, women were not left on the sidelines in the media coverage.
2: Yeah, they've got to push for two. Who's going to cover the keeper's stumps? they
1: Well, that was the moment that the Cricket World Cup semi-final tilted in the Black Caps' favour in Manchester in the early hours of Thursday morning our time. And it was a complicated moment for RNZ's reporter at the Cup, Ravinda Hunia. Once India and New Zealand were paired together in the final four, she wrote about having to internalise a really complicated situation in her head on the RNZ website. Her father was born in Punjab in India 60 years ago, she explained, and her mum, five years later, in Te Puke. So she didn't really know which side to back, India or New Zealand, until she got a nudge from her dad.
3: In the midst of all this, I got a text from my father. Who would he support, I wondered. Go the Black Caps, it said. Go the Black Caps indeed.
1: And Ravinda also got a nudge from RNZ colleague Justin Gregory on this week's edition of the RNZ podcast, not your average cricket show. When she said she'd started leaning towards India, having come face to face with their fans in England.
3: When I uh, see the dancing and things like that, I can't help but feel festive than things just like these fans that I call my my counterparts. Uh,
2: well, let's let's, let's but... put it in
1: slightly different terms for you, uh, for you, Ravinda. Which country's national broad- broadcaster paid for you to
2: be over there to cover these games? <laughs>
1: Now, Justin Gregory has actually written an entire play about split cricket loyalties himself. It's about two trans-Tasman brothers torn in two over the underarm incident back in 1981. But that's another story. And on the Not Your Average cricket show last Monday, his co-host Zoe George made a good point to Ravinda Hoonia.
3: As journalists, though, we're meant to be impartial, right? So uh, we shouldn't really cheer for anyone. I come in in as an unbiased r reporter, (laughs) I think. That that will be my safety net.
1: (laughs) And Zoe George also knows what it's like to serve a cricketing country other than her own. She once worked for and toured with Japan's national men's and women's cricket teams as their media manager. And the second series of Not Your Average Cricket Show, which was billed as hitting traditional cricket commentary for six, certainly did break the mould in terms of talent. While it has ex black Cap Ian O'Brien in the UK as a regular pundit, Women who've played for New Zealand also got equal billing as guests.
3: And our guest co host today is international cricketer and White Fern wicketkeeper Katie Martin. Katie made her international debut in 2003 against England, and during her career she played 75 ODIs, 74 T20s for New Zealand. She scored more than 1,300 runs in the longer format. Kia ora! Lovely to have you on the show, Katie. Thanks for having me.
1: And it turned out that Monday's guest Katie Martin, like Ravinda Hoonia, also had split loyalties based on her family background, though hers were a little more local.
3: My father actually said I wasn't allowed to play for Canterbury and if I did, he'd disown me, so I've stuck (laughs) stuck with the blue and gold ever since. Oh, that's a good thing.
1: (laughs) And last Monday's Not Your Average Cricket show also tackled cricket issues far beyond what was happening at the Cricket World Cup or on the pitch anywhere. Of course, we're also meant to have another Martin on the show today. That's New Zealand Cricket Board Member and former international cricketer Martin Snedden. Last week, he'd agreed to come on the show to talk about his experiences both playing and administration, as well as giving his picks for the semis and the final.
3: However, we also wanted to get his take on the behaviour of blackcap Scott Kugeline and more recently former rep cricketer and Taradale club cricketer Jason Trembeth, who has been jailed for grouping 11 women. While the main focus of the show is the World Cup, there's been so much talk about cricket's culture and Snedden bringing such mana. We flagged with him we'd want to hear from him on that. But sadly, Sneddon then pulled out of the interview.
1: New Zealand cricket wouldn't put up anyone to discuss its response to those issues at all. And with the Cricket World Cup for women due to be held here in two years' time, the show also delved into the contractual status of players with Katie Martin.
3: The men's domestic teams. Some of those contracts have already been announced. Is the same thing going to happen with women? Yeah, it's a great question. I know they're going through the MOU um, discussions, and mm. I'm um, expecting some um, decisions to be made over the next couple of weeks. Our new contracting period starts the first of August. So, look, hopefully, I mean, it's a really good opportunity for um, New Zealand cricket to make a stance on on women's cricket, and you know, hopefully, look at. Um, I guess, investing more money for not only the White Ferns um, girls to be more full-time or more professional contracts.
1: So clearly then, Not Your Average Cricket Show does live up to the name, and we'll talk to its co-host Zoe George about that in a minute. But financial fairness between men and women playing the same game also came up in a big way at the World Cup final across the English Channel last Monday. Prize money for winning the Women's World Cup in football in France is a fraction of what France's male players banked for winning the men's version of the tournament in Russia a year ago. And that's why the president of the sport's global governing body, FIFA, was loudly booed there when he stepped out to present the World Cup to the US women's national team. 28 top US players are suing their own employers over poor conditions and pay relative to those enjoyed by their male counterparts. And US fans in the stands in France kept up this chant in support throughout the presentation of the World Cup trophy. The tournament's undisputed star and talking point was the US captain Megan Rapineau. And while most media trained athletes steer well clear of anything that could rock the boat, she didn't dodge any tough topics during the Women's World Cup of football. She said she approved of the booing of the FIFA boss. A little public shame never hurt anyone, she told reporters. And the day before the game, Megan Rapinoe slammed FIFA for scheduling the finals of two men's international tournaments, the Copa America in Brazil and the Gold Cup in Mexico, on the same day as the Women's World Cup final.
3: Um, when the World Cup final is set you know, so, so far in advance, it's actually unbelievable. Um, so no, I don't, I don't think that we feel the same level of respect, um, certainly, that FIFA has for the men and, and just in general.
1: And that was another reason why the president of FIFA got an earful from the stands in Lyon last Monday. And the president of the US has been on the receiving end from Megan Rapinoe too. I'm not going to the effing White House, she told a reporter a while back, who asked her if the team would go there if they won the World Cup. And she's not the only player in the squad to say they want no part in a presidential photo opportunity. And a Fox News reporter in a sports bar in Lyon last Monday found out during a live cross after the World Cup final that the fans were on Megan Rapineau's side.
2: We are here in a sports bar in Lyon, France. Here, listen to it. We are in a sports bar. We were going to be outside...
1: The BBC had female pundits and presenters for the Men's Football World Cup in Russia last year. UK media companies' podcasts routinely have women as hosts, guests and panellists when they were all but absent just a few years ago. And here, former Black Ferns pop up in Sky's coverage of men's rugby, but reporting teams that head overseas to big sports events are still often entirely male or almost all male. And we noticed in Ravinda Hunia's photos of press conferences from the Cricket World Cup in the UK lately, not a lot of women in the room, sometimes none at all. So that was a question I put to Zoe George, the co-host of the Not Your Average Cricket Show. Is covering the men's game still a man's game?
3: women's voices when it comes to sports commentary, in particular cricket, is just as important as men's and we're seeing an increase of women's voices being contributed to the wider commentary box. So Sky Sport has put in a lot of women over the last two summers but sometimes that hasn't been received all that well. This
1: is for domestic cricket coverage here in New Zealand? For domestic
3: and international cricket coverage here in New Zealand Um, and you may remember last year Debbie Hockley who's the President of New Zealand Cricket and arguably one of the best cricketers we've ever had uh, was commentating for Sky uh, not this summer but the summer before, and the amount of abuse that she received was quite startling. The air they threatened to smash her, they called her names that we shouldn't really broadcast. Was and, it
1: the thing she was saying, or just the mere presence of a, of a woman in the commentary both, team? That both. Yeah,
3: so when I interviewed the guy who set up the petition, he said it sounded like he was listening to his mum commentate cricket, and I was like, wow, your mum's pretty knowledgeable. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but Obviously, the, the men's cricket world cup in the UK was mm. the peg for the series of Not Your Average Cricket Show. But was it, I mean, you, you, you're not just talking about the tournament. Mm-hmm. Um, was this a case of, you know, while we've got your attention because there's a big tournament on and the black caps are doing well, uh, we're going to discuss these ushu- other issues that are nothing to do with what's actually on the back pages well, of the papers?
3: These issues are all around cricket anyway so it's just about bringing those issues to light. So sport is meant to be um, a reflection of society as a whole and just because one of our teams doing really well doesn't mean that there's wider issues happening and cricket is grassroots and there have been big stories around the behaviour of cricketers and those associated with cricket and the culture of cricket and particularly if cricket is trying to attract more girls and women to the sport which is which is what they're trying to do, particularly ahead of the 2020 Cricket World Cup being hosted here in New Zealand. It's important that we actually provide an environment that's safe um, and positive for women and girls to get into. Um, So we need to be having these wider discussions about sport and the way that sport impacts society and the way that society
1: impacts sport. Well, we've heard um, Ravinda at, uh, at the Cricket World Cup in the UK, but pictures of her shot in the press room. Hardly any women, sometimes none at all.
3: Absolutely. Of course it is. Um, And you just have to look at the roster for uh, the ICC official commentary roster. They put it out for every big tournament last year. They had the women's T20. They had 14 commentators. Six of those were women. For the men's uh, one this year, they have a roster of 24. And of those, three are women.
1: So here say, if it's rugby, are there former Black Ferns and so on in Sky television panels and that kind of coverage? Yeah, there
3: are. And it's growing as well, which is fantastic. You know, Sky has obviously recognised that there's a need for female voices, both in the commentary box and on the sideline. Plus, on the panels, um, you know, the pre and post-show panels that they have. And back to the Cricket World Cup, though, they have a panel, which is great. Um, Frankie Mackay, who's a White Fern, is a co-host, which is brilliant. She's doing a great job. But what I'm noticing more and more is that the other people who are on the panel are all men and more often than not, they're white.
1: Well, last weekend, another World Cup came to an end and that was the Women's Football World Cup in France. Now, the football ferns uh, got dumped out in the group stage, but disappointing, I think only scored one goal and I think Cameroon actually did that for them. Um, <laughs> so not a good tournament. And I would have thought that that would have you know, completely faded from the headlines, both sporting and mainstream, but there's been a lot of coverage in that tournament globally because of the US women's national team and specifically their captain, Megan Rapinoe, or one of their captains, challenging inequities and inequalities uh, while the spotlight's been on her. Have you found that
2: coverage interesting?
3: Yeah, very, very interesting. Um, And I like the way that it's just gone completely global. And she's been almost, the entire team, not just her, but the entire team have been pushed up. Uh, but now they've been given this platform and they're making their, their use of that platform, which is great to see. They're talking about pay equity. She's talking about why they won't go to the White House. Because of this Women's World Cup, the Football World Cup, that it just puts everything in the spotlight. I really hope that other organisations go, yeah, actually, it's now time.
1: Another issue that really has been put in the spotlight because of that, and specifically the intense focus on Megan Rapinoe, mm. GL, uh, LGBT players. So uh, I don't know if if it's correct or accurate, but a lot of articles saying there are herself and 40 other players who are gay or bisexual specifically. That's how the reports were framed uh, in those squads. There are four countries of the 24 that took part where homosexuality is either illegal or it'd be extremely risky uh, to to be out and gay. So possibly even more players on the roster uh, were as well. Um, Rugby, cricket top-level professional international football, absolutely none, never happens.
3: Female sports people have always kind of been open about where they stand with this. Um, What I'd like to see right now, and particularly in line with the cricket, is to have a cricketer come out.
1: It must be partly a media issue, right? They don't want to be exposed to the scrutiny of either being the first, let alone any of the judgments that might come from players, fans or whatever. You
3: would hope that in 2019 that the media would treat these people fairly and give them a fair go. Um, I would hope here in New Zealand that that would be the way. But like I said earlier, sport is a reflection of society and within sport there are still certain bigoted ideas uh, and it, that's just a reflection of some of the things that are going on outside.
1: That was Zoe George, co-host of RNZ's podcast Not Your Average Cricket Show which has been on throughout the Cricket World Cup and she was talking to me there a few hours after that dramatic semi-final win against India last Thursday. Now more of our chat about those topics is in the online version of the story. That's on the RNZ website or the RNZ app or our podcast feed. Just look for the title Women's Centre Stage in Two World Cups. And Zoe and Justin Gregory will be back with a fresh episode of Not Your Average Cricket Show tomorrow, looking back at what happens in the final tonight and how the Cricket World Cup 2019 unfolded. Now, you can also get that on the RNZ website and the RNZ app, of course, or wherever you get your podcasts. And likewise, Fair Play, a monthly podcast about women in sport, which Zoe makes for RNZ in conjunction with the global women's sports network, wispsports.com. From time to time on mainstream broadcasters like RNZ, you'll hear a message like this.
3: If you think RNZ has breached formal standards either on air or in our online content, you have the right to make a formal complaint. This must be made in writing to the broadcaster first within 20 working days of the broadcast. To find out about those standards or to lodge a complaint, go to rnz.co.nz and type formal complaint into our search engine and you'll be directed to our formal complaints page. The standards were prepared by broadcasters including
1: RNZ. And of all the watchdog agencies which hold media to account for the content they publish or put on air, the BSA is the most muscular. Others are self-regulatory but the Broadcasting Standards Authority is backed up by the law the Broadcasting Act of 1989, to be specific. Its rulings are effectively legal documents, which can be appealed in the High Court, and uniquely, the Broadcasting Standards Authority can order errant broadcasters off the air for really bad breaches of the broadcasting codes and even make them apologise, though it hardly ever does those things. But from time to time, the BSA does make them pay a modest amount for breaking the rules. For example, last year, Heather Duplessy-Allen described the Pacific Islands as leeches on us, more than once, on Talk ZB. And after public complaints about that, the authority found that those comments breached the standards for good taste and decency, and also discrimination and denigration. The authority ordered Talk ZB to broadcast a statement that made that clear, and then to pay $3,000 in costs to the Crown. And no other media watchdog can do that. But now the Broadcasting Standards Authority is shifting its focus a little. The BSA has announced what it calls a strategic refresh, which puts the spotlight on harm and also promises increased engagement and education with broadcasters and the public. And it's got a new vision statement freedom in broadcasting without harm. But who decides what's harmful and why? In these days of angst and argument about free speech, hate speech and freedom of expression, that's a thorny issue for an agency that's backed up by the law. The Broadcasting Standards Authority's latest Statement of Performance Expectations has more on this new approach. For instance, it says we will also assess what further changes to the broadcasting codes may be required, taking into account the unprecedented terrorist attack in Christchurch. So what changes might these bring, and how will broadcasters react to any new rules about that? Questions I put to the BSA Chair, Judge Bill Hastings, and the Authority's Chief Executive, Belinda Moffat.
0: What the authority does when it receives a complaint is it balances the right to freedom of expression, the value of the expression against what potential harm may have arisen. So what um, the authority and and the BSA has, has elected to do is to say, let's make sure we are putting the spotlight on the fact that harm is a really important part of what we do.
1: That boils down to what some people find harmful, what some people find offensive. Are you changing the way you look at that?
0: What we are there to do is to reflect our society and our community values. And there are varying views about what is harmful. So what the authority does when it's looking at whether a broadcast has caused harm is they look at the context, they look at the surrounding facts, and they also, as I say, they look at the really important role that broadcast media has to play, which can be to entertain, it can be to inform, and it can be to educate us. So we have to look at the broader context of the program in making that assessment of harm.
1: So Bill, that's an assessment you've had to make as a former chief censor as well in your previous post what do you make of this concept of harm because i think right now people are thinking about this more than they
2: ever have before because of you know political social yeah. changes in yeah. our country well, i think i think that's right you know when i was the chief censor i was operating under a, a different statute mm-hmm. um as chair of the broadcasting standards authority it's a, a different statute again with different different criteria we have standards um, as Belinda said, harm is um, basically, we've always had to balance that uh, against the freedom of expression. I mean, we're not regulating um, just for the sake of regulating. Uh, we have to regulate both to prevent harm uh, up front uh, if we can, uh, and that's why we have codes. Uh, that's why we have standards. That's why we have a sort of education program you know, to arm parents and caregivers uh, about the tools they can use to make sure Uh, You know, vulnerable segments of society, particularly children, Mm -hmm. um, are not exposed to things uh, that could harm them, uh, both, you know, the harm that broadcast can cause to vulnerable segments of society as well as um, preserving the broadcaster's freedom of expression, which is not absolute, but uh, which is an important uh, thing to take into account. When you mentioned there certain sectors of society,
1: particularly children, well, we we know that children are a special case. They need to be looked after. They're young. That's obvious. But there are... People right now arguing in other spheres of life and politics in our society that there are certain sectors of society that can be harmed, can be targeted. I mean, after Christchurch, people are looking at comments being made about the Muslim community. Others are saying we need the freedom to criticize religions and all of this. Now, when you're considering broadcasting complaints under this new uh, approach of freedom and broadcasting without harm, is this going to play into that?
2: Well, I think it inevitably does. I I can't um, make any comments on any particular complaints we've received. I mean, certainly there is a a kind of heightened awareness of things like hate speech. But even not even going that far, there's a heightened awareness of balance and fairness and accuracy uh, in reporting, which I think is uh, so much more important these days given the, the sort of political and social environments we're in. It's probably too soon for complaints about this, but in recent
1: days, Martin Selner, the Austrian far-right person, appeared in the news. There will be people who feel that's harmful to certain segments of New Zealand society, that broadcasters shouldn't be airing this. You may get complaints about that. Have you seen an upswing of people reacting to what we might call post-Christchurch coverage and figuring, actually, it's harmful that the media
2: is doing this? There have been complaints of that nature. I think that's fair to say. So I think
0: perhaps we just start, you know, with Christchurch. We did receive a handful of yeah. complaints around um, how the events in Christchurch were broadcast and we're dealing with those at the moment and as 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 um, Bill has said we we can't talk about the detail of that. You know, we accept that that was an extraordinary, mm. unprecedented, horrific event mm. and the media had to really step up in really, in really difficult circumstances. Have, on, on the other hand as well, we also understand it was really distressing for mm. the Muslim community, for the families and friends of those victims, and also for the wider community to see what was unfolding. But though all of those features will be taken into account in the context, as I said before, when the, when the authority looks at those and, and decisions on those will come out soon. Moving on to what we're seeing post-Christchurch, we have seen a steady stream of complaints, but not necessarily of the nature that you have discussed. But the issue there is the complaints always go to the broadcaster first. Mm. So they will look at them, consider them, and it's only if the complainant isn't happy with what the broadcaster has done or said in response that they can come to us. So if if gone you're aware that there are concerns being raised, maybe it is that broadcasters are dealing with it at the front line, which, which we say is how the system is supposed to work, um, where they do have that opportunity to you know consider the feedback, um, maybe take it into account, um, or if they do have a justification for how they've dealt with an issue, provide that justification back to the complainant. Um, so, look, we, we, we're we obviously acutely aware that these issues are really important, really important at the moment. And I think it's it has been a driver for why we've said we want to make it clear to people that we really do look at harm, that we're not just looking at freedom of expression, that we do look and we do balance harm as
1: well. Mm. But the, this nature of harm, I, mean, I know we started talking about it, but something that's a finer judgment about our modern life and society, something that's upsetting. Um, I mean, these are... Quite political concepts right now isn't it that people say harm is being equated by some people just being offended that these are these are debates do you really want to be drawn into these by raising this concept of harm?
0: number one we've always looked at harm, so this strategy is about saying making sure we, we put the spotlight on it harm, in terms of has has the community's ex- um, you know view on harm changed. So, so in our, in our assessments, um, we're always looking at whether it's just personal preference. Mm. So a key part to broadcasting standards is, has the broadcaster signalled and signposted what their broadcast programme is about? And that's a key thing we're really interested in making sure we work with broadcasters on. So have you told people what to expect in this programme? Have you signalled that this is going to be a challenging debate about a political content? You know, concept for kids is it going to raise some mature mature themes? Is it going to have you know sexual references? And if, if the broadcaster has told their audience about what they're going to be talking about, that enables the audience to make a discerning decision: Do I want to keep listening? Do I want to participate in this debate? Then there is an element to where it becomes more harmful at the sharp end, and that's where we have a discrimination and denigration standard. And that is where we really are starting to look at the really sharp end of what the authority does, which is human rights. And if and if human rights have been infringed, and you can see harm from that, then the authority has the ability to step in and say, actually, in this situation, freedom of expression, the right to freedom of expression, should be limited. And we're going to uphold the complaint, and we will. And, and they may then choose to use one of the orders that they have.
1: Well, one specific case of that did occur just within the last few months. It was um, Heather Duplessy Allen. On the News Talk CB station, more than once, saying the Pacific Islands are leeches on us. Yes. Uh, those are the words she used and, and stood by. So the authority there stepped in and said, Look, this is, uh, breaches the standard for uh, good taste and decency, I think, and denigration. Uh, so quite a, a hefty decision. To a lot of people in the current social political climate about discussions of free speech, hate speech, freedom of expression, a lot of people felt she was just expressing a point of view and she and the station shouldn't be punished for that. Um, these two sorts of decisions will be controversial, won't they, if you're going to try and decide whether people have been harmed or not. Because a lot of people just won't agree that that harm is significant.
0: Look, that's right. And I won't go behind the decision. The decision is written. It, it, stand, it mm-hmm. stands for itself. Um, having said that, I think the key thing there was what the authority did is they said, let's look at New Zealand's community. And how did the community respond And what was the broadcaster's response? And I think in that case, the decision says it was the opportunity to put the statements in context. But instead of putting the statements in context, there was a bit of a double downing on the, on the statement that had been made. And I think that was one of the factors.
2: Could I say too, Colin, that, um, you know, we wrestled with that. (laughs) We debated it back and forth and back and forth. We have a four-member board. Uh, You know, at times it was three to one. Sometimes it was two to two. Sometimes it was three to one the other way. Um, But, um, you know, we eventually came to what we felt was a really robust decision, Um, you know, after a great extensive debate, (laughs) balancing harm against the freedom of expression. Um, and um, you know, again, not not wanting to go behind the decision and letting the decision speak for itself. Um, you know, it's always appealable. Mm-hmm. Um, so and they chose not to. In and, this instance. well, I, so I, far, I, so, so far anyway. <laughs> I don't know whether the appeal periods run out. Um, but but you know, the process that went into it, I think, was really good. Mm-hmm. So is that
1: a marker, perhaps, that decision, if we're going to talk about harm? Because if you're going to single out a group of people, identifiable group of people, well, that's harm?
2: It, well, it could well be a marker. It's not really for us to say. Uh, you know, Don't forget that we have a body of decisions now going back 30 years. This is our 30th anniversary. You can wish us happy birthday. Happy birthday, indeed. Thank you. But, um, you know, this is, this is a huge body of precedent, which people can point to. Uh, to be able to tell how we interpret the, 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 the standards uh, over the years so they could, you know, guide their own behavior and practice uh, when they broadcast. Or, albeit that they're always decided on by a, a different character component oh, yep. of, of Yeah, yep. but, there is, but there, there is a consistency over time.
1: Um, Belinda, the uh, statement of performance expectations also says um, we will also further assess. What further changes to the codes may be required, taking into account the unprecedented attack in Christchurch? Broadcasters um, might feel they're equipped to make the best calls about that. Are you, are you actually looking at changing the codes in response to um, what happened in Christchurch?
0: The key thing in response to Christchurch is how does a media report on a terrorist event? We don't have a terrorism standard. Um, some jurisdictions have quite limited anti-terrorism standards. Um, so what we did after Christchurch was we did a, a note to our broadcasters to say, to acknowledge, the, as I said before, the situation they were in in reporting. So we said, don't forget the standards. And I'm sure that the, the, particularly the mainstream media will have said, of, of course we know what our journalist principles are. Mm. Um, but we said, don't forget the standards. Don't forget about a piece of advice or guidance that we had put together the year before with broadcasters about how to use social media content in broadcasting. We also reminded them about what the DIA and Chief Censor had said about the GoPro, GoPro footage being objectionable material. After that, we put together a research paper which looked at international international principles about reporting on terrorism. Um, we didn't want to tell the broadcasters what to do. The standards in New Zealand is, is their guideline from our perspective, and, uh, and, and there's also the, the Media Council um, principles as well. But we said there are international principles. We are dealing with an unprecedented event. This may be useful to you. And shortly after that, the um, New Zealand Media Freedom Committee also put out a statement about their collective view about how they would report on the trial, which we thought was a really proactive and sensible, you know, step to take. And um, and you know, we we support that initiative. What it's made us ask ourselves is: Do we need to develop? the standards, do we need to have a standard about reporting on terrorism? I don't think in New Zealand we thought we'd have to get to that point, but we'll look at that. We had also, prior to Christchurch, identified the discrimination and denigration standard as being a standard we need to look at to your point before about is this an issue where the community views have changed? Does is our standard fit for purpose? Um, However, as there's now work underway looking into hate speech through the Ministry of Justice um, under the direction of the Minister of Justice, we are going to wait to see what the outcome of that is and then we will look at the denigration and discrimination standard and say, you know, do we need to make any adjustments to that? Importantly, if we make any changes, that will be in consultation with broadcasters because we work in a co-regulatory environment. So we, we work with the broadcasters to determine what are the appropriate standards. So those are two initiatives that we're going to follow through.
1: But but on that, you do say we intend to increase, uh, this is the Broadcasting Standards Authority, we intend to increase our guidance work with broadcasters, ensure they pos- po- properly classify and warn audiences, etc. Um, but if you're the public, whether it's Christchurch Call or the BSA, the public wants these regulatory bodies from time to time to bring the hammer down mm. you know sure you can meet with them and make sure everyone understands everything but the public wants you to enforce the standards. Uh, uh, Ultimately,
2: we're the backstop, right? Ultimately, everything comes to us. Mm. Uh, If it's not adequately resolved uh, at first instance by the broadcasters, then it comes to us and and we are the hammer. You're right. So when you Um, say we will increase our guidance, what guidance do they need? The guidance they need to deal with uh, how they classify uh, programs up front, the guidance they need to deal with complaints when they come in at first instance to them, um, so that I guess, really, it minimizes our job. We get fewer complaints if they're, if they're actually, uh, you know, complying with the standards that we have developed together. Um, but all the while, as Belinda says, recognizing, you know, the value of uh, the freedom of expression. That was the
1: chair of the Broadcasting Standards Authority, Judge Bill Hastings, and the authority's chief executive, Belinda Moffat. And there's a longer interview with them about all those issues in the online version of the story on the RNZ website, where you can also find links to the Broadcasting Standards Authority's Statement of Performance Expectations, which outlines its plans for refreshing its role as the broadcast media's official watchdog. And finally, on MediaWatch this weekend, a New Zealand media milestone popped up last week, but MediaWatch missed it. It was only this week we caught up with the fact that the Edge TV channel has been taken off the air by broadcaster MediaWorks five years, almost to the day, after it launched. And we weren't the only ones not to notice. On social media, fans of the channel have been asking, Where's it gone? And they've been surprised to see it replaced by a delayed rebroadcast of the company's not-very-widely-watched channel, 3Life. Now, that offers a round-the-clock mishmash of reality shows, design, food and fashion programs, mostly from the US, the UK and Australia, one hour after they've already gone out on the 3Life channel. Now there's plenty of those sorts of shows on free-to-air TV already, along with three Chinese language channels, three shopping channels and three channels of non-stop Christian content. But there are now no locally made music TV channels at all and none on free-to-air TV. Now back in 2003, MediaWorks started C4 as an eclectic music channel and there was also Juice TV at the time. And for three years on Sky, Alt TV added variety to the MTV channels from overseas. But in 2014, MediaWorks replaced C4 with The Edge TV, an on-screen offshoot of its market-leading commercial music station, and it promoted the new channel like this. On radio, on web, on mobile, on social, and now on TV. The Edge TV, June 27. Turn it on. Now, back then, The Edge's programme director, Leon Ratt, told MediaWatch that this was digital age convergence and a taste of the future. We're part of MediaWorks, um, which is obviously you know very successful television as well,
3: so we were able to get the, the, free view, the use of the Freeview channel, which is fantastic, so everyone's got free-to-air um, music TV, which is the only channel which is available there, and as well as to be on Sky. So I think it'll be very difficult for everyone to be across all platforms, but there's absolutely no doubt Um, You know, there's no reason why the Rock TV couldn't be there or the Breeze TV.
1: But five years after promising radio with pictures on steroids, it seems the drugs don't work anymore. Pulling the plug on the Edge TV, the man at the very top of MediaWorks, CEO Michael Anderson, said this was driven by viewers consuming music videos online. He says Edge TV is now an HD streaming proposition on 3Now, the Rover app and the Edge's own website. And... The move to HD will allow the Edge TV audience to experience their favourite artists with a quality never seen before in New Zealand, on any device, anywhere. Any device, it seems, except the TV that's in your front room. A fan called Ollie Chicks launched an online petition, don't take the Edge TV off the air, and he pointed out that the viewers of the 3Life channel could also use the 3Now on-demand service if they missed a show they like. And the content for the Edge TV is still being created for online, so why not just keep broadcasting it on TV? Karen Hay knows about music and media works. She ran the Kiwi FM station at the company for several years. And back in the days, long before music videos were all available online and on demand for free, the 1980s, she hosted Radio with Pictures for TVNZ. And on Midweek Media Watch last Wednesday here on RNZ National, she told me this.
3: MediaWorks, every decision that they make is to do with Ebert Dar, so that will be at the heart of it, <laughs> money. Uh, and isn't it to do with the audience that audience just don't watch TV? TV's dead. It's all about the app. Only only parents and strange people watch TV. It's all about the small, bite-sized pieces of information, Colin. I was having a look at a few of the online Edge headlines from the Dom, Dom Meg and Randall show. Meg shares a rude joke her German teacher taught her in high school and Dom reveals what women wear that really turns them on. So you go and have it. a quick look at that now, so,
1: <laughs> so I've been missing out. I haven't been going there for my news headlines. But,
3: but it's all about that. The actual online version of it is the video as well
1: as some small little pieces of information underneath it, so it's as much as your brain can handle. Five years on, the week that they can... This TV station, the Edge TV, uh, the actual radio station returned its highest ever or the the highest audience figures of any uh, New Zealand commercial radio station in the latest survey, some 630,000 people. I would have thought you could have got an audience out of that. Nobody has a TV these days in that age group, Colin. <laughs> So it seems the boss at MediaWorks might be right that everyone's now watching music videos online on their own devices. A case of online video killing the TV video star, which didn't kill the radio star after all. That's all we have for you in MediaWatch this weekend, but we'll be back again on Midweek MediaWatch at 10.30 next Wednesday night with Karen Hay, and then back again for MediaWatch at the same time next Sunday here on RNZ National.